Let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much once again for this tremendous opportunity, this wonderful privilege to gather together as family in the unity of the faith, Father, a faith that you've given by grace alone. Father, thank you for the gospel call. Thank you for calling us. Thank you for electing us from eternity past even so that we might continue to evangelize on your behalf to bring this good news about your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, to a lost and dying world, Father. Thank you for your patience with us, your mercy, your grace, your love, all the while, while we do this thing, to your glory. Father, we pray for those in the congregation that are sick, that can't be with us here this morning, but earnestly desire to be here. We want them to know that we're with them in spirit and we're praying for them for their return. Of course, your will be done. We pray also, Father, for those that are still lost, that we might evangelize them, that you, as a function of your patience, might bring them to the type of humility and repentance that prepares a soil for the good seed and that they might be evangelized and become brothers and sisters in Christ with us for all of eternity. Father, we are most grateful and thankful, of course, for your son's work on the cross to cancel out that debt and make a morning like this even a reality. We do just ask for your blessings on this morning's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, this morning's message title is uh, What is Repentance and Who Gets to Define It? Part 2. We're going to spend a little bit of time on definitions um, this morning, but we'll see how the Spirit moves you the way He's been moving me. I want to begin with a story. Uh, A man gets a phone call on a Friday afternoon. It's his trusted friend who informs him that he's a dying man and he wants to give him his fortune. He's only got one day to live, so he asks the man to meet him at the bank the next day on a Saturday so that he can transfer his fortune over to his friend. The bank closes at noon and as the friend has stated, he only has a day left to live. That night, The man goes out and parties like it's 1999. (laughs) Prince? Nobody? He wakes up the next morning hungover. In his drunken state the night before, he forgot to set his alarm. It's now 12.01 in the afternoon. The bank has closed. At 5 p.m., he receives a phone call from his friend's doctor informing him that his friend has indeed passed away. The moral of the story is that while the man believed his wealthy friend without question, in other words, he believed the facts, he failed to show up to receive the free gift. He had refused to miss out on a night of partying to ensure he got to the bank in time. As a result, he never received the fortune. This is the same thing that happens when a person understands the gospel, at least the facts, 
and refuses to repent and actually receive the free gift of salvation. Why? Because they are too busy serving themselves and unwilling to let go of the self-life. Too busy. You know, Jesus taught several uh, parables about that very thing. They're too busy serving themselves and unwilling to let go of the self-life. It's true, they want the fortune. I mean, who doesn't? They want heaven. And they even trust that it exists. But you see, my friends, you must show up in person as a willing recipient in order to receive the gift. In the context of our current series, this is analogous to repentance up here on the board. <clears throat> Let's call this the gospel call. A person who never shows up, mind, heart, and will, cannot receive the free gift of salvation by grace through faith. That's what repentance is. Do you understand? It's about giving up. That's not work. So stop calling it works if you're so stuck in that system of thinking. That's not a work of man. It's called giving up. It's called surrendering. It's called realizing that the life that you were born into is dead. That God is sovereign and you need a Savior. And you're no longer trying to save yourself, but you're a willing, a willing recipient of God's solution to the problem. Why is that so hard for people to understand? You know why it's hard? Because their flesh doesn't like it. That's why. The flesh wants to party till it's 1999 and then, it, you know, then, then, then somehow still receive the gift by never showing up. You've got to show up, my friends. A person who never shows up, mind, heart, and will, cannot receive the free gift of salvation by grace through faith. Before we dig our heels into the truth on the board, let's quickly review this past week because these lessons are all connected. We completed our 17-part series on what is good and who gets to define it with the following capstone principles up here on the board. What is good? To love like Christ does. That's good. To love. Love is good. To abide in a love that cannot help but express itself and to be honest about those who receive it and those who don't. And who gets to define what is good? God does. The world's going to tell you this is good or that is good. The world's going to tell you to put yourself on a pedestal because that's good. The world's going to tell you to supplant God's rightful place as sovereign in your life. That's good to be able to do that thing, to elevate the flesh. That's good. That's what the world will tell you. That's exactly the kind of thing that we need to repent from. Who gets to define what is good? God does. His fingerprints are all over his creation. We call that um, general, uh, general revelation. His creation and through the various special revelations of himself, including his manifestation as Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Now, one of the final principles in our previous series precipitated our current series, which is titled, What is Repentance? And who gets to define it? So this is the connective tissue, if you would, up here on the board, on loving the greatest seed we can ever sow is the gospel. This seed is the very expression of God's love, and therefore, when sown righteously 
an expression of our own love. In other words, that's why God leaves us here after salvation. To go out and what? Complete the Great Commission. To go sow the seed. We know what the Great Commission is up here on the board. Matthew 28, 19-20. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. That's what we call the Great Commission. So the intersection between the principle about sowing the gospel seed out of love and the Great Commission itself is that every situation demands a contextual response. Let me say that again because it's a mouthful. The intersection between the principle about sowing the gospel seed out of love and the Great Commission itself is that every situation demands a contextual response. Again, that's a mouthful, I know, but let me explain what the Spirit's getting at here. Here's an example for you. Imagine a person comes to you broken, so broken and humbled that they are begging you to explain salvation to them. They are wide open to receiving the good news about our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's funny because as I wrote this, I wondered how often that actually happens nowadays, especially in this geography. Probably not that often. What you might say to that person is, you are in the perfect place for God to save you, my friend, for you have a contrite heart, a soil tilled and ready for the gospel seed. And so in this case, you might only need them to give or need to give them a taste of the, quote, well of water springing up to eternal life, to quote Jesus in John 4.14. You may just need to give them the good news about Jesus Christ because their soil is ready, you see. And that person might be saved by God right there on the spot. Why? Because their soil had already been prepared and was what Jesus would call the good soil in his parable of the soils in Matthew 13. However, as most of you will attest, this example is increasingly less likely to occur in our lives, especially in this ungodly part of the world. It's really hard to find a repentant person, or at least a person who's willing to repent of the self-life. There's just so much arrogance out there. And people want the free gift, but they don't want to show up, you see. What we usually face in our evangelist or even evangelistic, excuse me, efforts is an arrogance that can only be attributed to the God of this world. It postures itself upon attorney-like client privileges, protecting the flesh with its fleshly arguments against the very grace of God. It also supposes that the flesh isn't all that bad. And so the idea of repentance isn't from a root of deeply seated remorse at all, but rather something of a, let's call it a parochial or a narrow definition. In other words, the flesh will receive a certain definition of repentance as long as it doesn't cost the self-life too much. That's not a willingness. That's, a, that's an intelligent person hedging a bet. 
And of course, you know, their definition must, quote, fit their own lifestyle. Or else it is dismissed as not worth it. Do you get it? It's not worth it to some people. The cost is too high to the flesh, you see. So they are unwilling. So think about this very practically for a moment. Isn't this precisely what the problem is with arrogance? It doesn't think the gospel call to repentance is worth it. Isn't that the problem with arrogance? Arrogance says it's not worth it. I like the self-life. So arrogance says it's not worth it. The whole idea of biblical repentance is not worth it to me. Give me something watered down. Give me something that's actually not even true, and I'll take that. Give me something on a little thing, a coin or something that says, here's your free ticket to heaven. Drop this at the gate. It's got a little prayer on it and maybe John 3.16 on the back. Give me that thing. I'll take that, put it in my pocket, and I'll go right back to my self-life. But when, it's, when I die, I'm going to take that coin out of my pocket and go, see, Jesus, I have it, so let me in the gate. That's not the gospel at all. But that's precisely what's being preached this very morning across our own so-called beloved country. People who are refusing to stand up for what Jesus taught himself. And whose gospel is it anyways? Ours? Or his? What did he have to say about the gospel? The very first thing he said was the same thing that John the Baptist said. Repent! (laughs) You see, arrogance utterly rejects Jesus' own words. Go to Mark 8.34. Mark 8.34. That is the problem with arrogance. It rejects the very words of Jesus Christ, the one whom the gospel is named after. I would argue that he is the good news. Do you understand that? That Jesus Christ, the person and his work, that is the good news. Repentance is just the other side of the coin. You're not going to receive him if you refuse to show up in humility. That's the point. There has to be a willingness And as we know, as we'll continue to see in Scripture, God's the one who grants repentance. So it's not a work of man. God grants repentance. You just have to be a willing person. You just have to surrender. Mark 8, 34. And he summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, He must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. He must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. In other words, you have to surrender, my friend. Up here on the board. At least be willing to surrender. Maybe you don't even know how to surrender. I mean, how many of you knew how to surrender to the Lord? At your moment of salvation, let's call it. How many? Nobody really knew. You were just willing. You were just willing. You said, I, 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 I can't solve this problem. i got a problem. I'm a wretched individual. You're sovereign and holy and almighty. And I'm a wretch. 
You're going to save me here. God solved that problem, didn't he? Amen? Yeah, he solved that problem for you. But you've got to at least be willing. He must deny himself. Repentance involves the mind, heart, and will of man. A person unwilling to deny himself cannot follow Jesus, precluding them from his salvation. I didn't say that. That's Jesus Christ saying that. Verse 35. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. There you go. You want to, you want to cling to the self-life? Guess what's going to happen? You're going to lose yours. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. You want to gain eternal life? Here's how you do it. Give up that old thing, and I'll show you the better way. Any questions? Why do people have a problem with this? Arrogance. Because the, the true gospel of Jesus Christ is utterly offensive to human sensibilities. That is why. To the human flesh. That is why. And sadly, there are pastors out there this very morning teaching a false gospel. One that says all you have to do is believe like the demons believed in these few facts right here about Jesus Christ. I'm going to show you why that's folly. Verse 36, For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man uh, give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words, me, do you understand? Me, he says, me. Lord and Savior, me, Jesus Christ. This gospel is about me. Not facts about me, me. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Again, the point the Spirit's making here, up here on the board, is relative to unfruitful soil. Arrogance maintains an unrepentant soil that will not receive the gospel of Jesus Christ. It will receive a different gospel from a different spirit regarding a different Jesus or another Jesus, as Scripture says in 2 Corinthians 11.4. It will receive those things. You see, an unrepentant heart will potentially receive something that's not actually the gospel at all. Especially one that says you don't have to repent. There is no call to repentance at all. Well, that's another gospel call. Do you understand? To another Jesus. Because Jesus Christ said, when he called, when he calls you, repent. Do you get it? And it will even bear fruit after that kind, but it will never be fruit of the true vine. John 15, 5. Oh, you'll get a lot of religiosity, just like the person I explained at the, during, before we recorded the lesson. People being saved and saying, I mean, I was going through the motions. I was going to church. If you ask any of my friends that watched me go to church even, they'd say, oh, yeah, you know, he's totally a believer. She's totally a believer. Look at them. They're sitting there. They're coming. They're, you know, heck, they even go to Bible studies. But you see, when it's religiosity, it's actually not fruit of the vine. It's the same kind of 
fruit. You shall know them by their fruit. It's the same kind of fruit that was born after the kind the Pharisees had. This is why most unbelievers we encounter today are utterly stuck in their unbelief. It's because their soil isn't ready for salvation. So if we go back to our second example of evangelism now, what we quickly realize is that repentance, a repentance discussion becomes the first order of business. In other words, a person, the first one was the humble person. You just gave them the, the good news about Jesus Christ. And they could have been saved on the spot. Only God knows. But let's just face it. If you're an evangelist in this area, if you're out evangelizing people in this area, it's really fine. It's hard to find somebody in that condition. Most people are really arrogant. Oh, they'll take anything free, right? I mean, heck, we're an entitled society as it is. We'll take anything free. We always want something for nothing, right? Who doesn't want that? So if we go back to our second example which is what we typically face, arrogance, what we quickly realize is that a repentance discussion becomes the first order of business. In other words, do you believe that God is sovereign, that the kingdom of God exists, that Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords, that God has every right to demand what He demands, for entrance into that kingdom. Do you believe those things? And do you think that you can get there by climbing on your own? Or do you think you need a little help? Because the person who thinks they can climb on their own, even a little bit, is the person who's clinging to the self-life, you see? That's what we call self-righteousness. Even if it's 90% God and 10% self-righteousness, it's still bad. It has to be a surrender. So the repentance discussion becomes the first order of business in this case. In other words, as is the case in the parable of the soils, while we can sow the gospel seed on any and every soil, a soil that isn't prepared to receive it in humility will never produce godly fruit. It either gets plucked away or it never grows up to completion, to salvation. Since we are God's fellow workers up here on the board, so says Scripture, 1 Corinthians 3, 9, we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building. Since we are God's fellow workers, we must tend to every aspect of good farming. If Jesus is going to use a farming analogy in his parable of parables, the one that set all the other ones straight, that's why it's so important you get your arms around that parable correctly. Whole religions have spawned off with false gospels because they've gotten that parable wrong. We must tend to every aspect of good farming. This is why the Spirit inspired the blog recently titled How to Prepare Farmland for Planting. Not this last one, but the, the blog before, last week's blog. How to prepare farmland for planting. The idea was to convey that the Bible uses the agricultural analogy because it makes perfect sense. And oh, by the way, farming is hard work. Just ask the farmer. 
and arguably the most important parts of farming is what actually occurs before any seed is actually planted. This is the same with salvation. There must be a humble response to, let's call it, the gospel call. There has to be a humble response to the gospel call. A person's soil must be properly and thoughtfully prepared before it receives the good news about Jesus Christ, the Savior. As I've stated similarly in the past, a person who doesn't realize they actually need a Savior isn't open to receiving ours in a way that results in salvation. You see, that's the problem. You might, be able to, you might be able to find a person today that says, I'll take your salvation. I'll take your trip to heaven. But I don't want to receive the whole truth about Jesus Christ. Because I don't think I need a Savior. And as a matter of fact, the very act of hedging that bet is them being their own Savior. Because, you know, that same person shops around for a gospel that suits their taste buds. Shops around for someone to tell them, oh, you're totally saved. Just say this little prayer or come up here and raise your hand to do this. I don't know, do a couple of cartwheels and maybe you'll jump in front of Peter in heaven. I'm being facetious, right? I'm being silly. A person who doesn't actually think they need a Savior won't receive the gospel properly. That's my point. So here we are at the crossroads again, where arrogance precludes the gospel seed from taking root up here on the board. We might call that the arrogant soil. Arrogance might concede a portion of the self-life, but never all of it. Jesus demands a willingness to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Matthew 3.8. That's right. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. For the results are, whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. Mark 8.35. Any questions? Again, arrogance might concede a portion of the self-life, but never all of it. Jesus demands a willingness to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. For the results are, whoever loses his life for my sake in the Gospels will save it. And please know that I purposely use the word willingness here to reflect humility because God gives you repentance. God's the one who empowers you to get rid of the self-life. You can't do that on your own. Do you understand? You're coming from a place where it's your sovereign. You see, that's the religious part of man saying, well, I'll climb out of this pit on my own not going to happen because God saves. And as I taught you two years ago, that's what it means to be saved, to be delivered from this sovereign, the sovereignty of sin, to the very sovereignty of Christ. That's what salvation means. Another word for salvation is deliverance from here to here. So I purposely use the word willingness to reflect humility. You have to be open to that, let's call it transaction, I guess. For as Holy Scripture states, even repentance is granted by God. 
I just don't want you to be confused about this. I don't want you to think that the call to repentance is something that you necessarily do. That it's a human work. It's just a surrender. That's not work at all. It's an acceptance. It's a humility. Acts eleven eighteen. All right, before we go even further, how many, how many here have completely given up the self-life? So where does Jesus get off saying, you must deny yourself or you can't follow me? He's talking about the willingness, my friends. You have to be willing. That's what it means to be sanctified. These things take time. Are you willing or not? Are you open to it? To God's power in your life? To transform you? By the even renewing of your mind? Are you open to these things? That's what it means to repent. To to turn away from that thing to this. Acts 11.18 When they heard this, they quieted down and glorified God, saying, Well then, God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. The repentance that leads to life. This is not Old Testament. This is not even the words of Jesus. This is New Testament proper. So anyone that tells you that repentance was only for Old Testament or even just the Jews or something silly like that isn't reading their Bible. Is obviously confused, sadly enough. In the end, what we'll continue to learn and see in the Bible is this so-called, let's call it a paradox, that while man is called to repent, God is actually the one who grants it for salvation's sake. Now, if that gives you fits, then too bad. Because that's exactly what the Bible says. The Bible calls us to repentance, but the Bible also said it's God's good work in us. Don't ask me to draw it, because I can't. Don't ask me to draw a line and say, say, well, this is your part of the responsibility, and this is God's part of the responsibility. All I can tell you is they both exist. You're called to do it, and God does it. which means you're a part of it. But yet you're not the power source. Which really relegates us to only an openness to it, a surrender to it. But we know from Scripture, we just read that up on the board, God has granted to the Gentiles, even, repentance that leads to life. So we know that repentance is on that road, the narrow road that leads to life. What's the problem? This, by the way, is a pattern that exists with all commands in the Bible. So do not make the mistake of singling out repentance because your flesh takes issue with it being a part of the gospel call. Up here on the board, let me give you a general theological truth found in the Bible. Because there, last time I checked, there's a lot of commands and demands in the Bible, right? But if we understand implicitly that the only way that we're ever able to fulfill God's commands or demands is by the grace of God, then we realize that 
The only way we're ever do any of them is by the grace of God, including, guess what? The demand or the command to repent. The general truth about demands, the Bible is chock full of demands that are literally impossible for man to obey without the help of the one making them. Now, if that's a paradox to you, so be it. What would you like me to say to you? That's between you and the Lord, you and God the Holy Spirit to work out in your soul. But if you're too darn lazy to read your Bible on your own time and you want to come to church and, I don't know, play church for a little while and pretend you're holy and pretend that God loves you and God's just approving you because you came to church one day, if that's what you're after, you're on the wrong road. That's not the narrow road at all. That's the arrogant road. It's trying to hedge a bet, trying to find a way into heaven, trying to squeak in while holding on to the self-life. If you want a gospel, that, I mean, there's plenty of churches that teach a gospel that will accommodate that. But it won't be this one. Because that's not what's right here. And shame on anyone who teaches it. The general truth about demands. The Bible is chock full of demands that are literally impossible for man to obey without the help of the one making them. While this seems paradoxical, it is nothing less than God's grace. That is how God's great. That is the pattern of grace. He says, I demand that you do this thing. How the heck am I going to do that? Remember the, the apostles? And who can be saved? Who can be saved then? And he said, with God, all things are possible. Amen? Exactly. That's how it works. He gives you a command. He, goes, he gives you the grace to fulfill the command. You don't muck it up until you say, don't worry about this one, God. I got it. <laughs> I got this one. You don't mess it up until you do that thing. Amen? Right. What do you think people are doing at salvation? I got it. While this may seem paradoxical, it is nothing less than God's grace. God is merely looking for willingness and humility in man. What else can we bring other than surrender? Other than humility? Other than a willingness. I mean, who the heck even knows what it means to repent? Have to, we, don't even, we still don't know all the sins we do. All of us are going to go out today, do some kind of a sin. We don't even know we do it. How do we repent from something we don't even know what's going on? You understand what I'm saying? This is God's good work. Philippians 1.6. He will complete a good work that he started in you at salvation. It's his work. Even this thing, this life that you're living, is his good work. He's just looking for willingness and humility in man. Therefore, when it comes to something as critical as the gospel call, repentance becomes one side of the coin, along with faith in Christ as the other. They're two sides of the same coin. You can't have one without the other. Jesus won't have it. He just won't. Both of these things require humility and the supernatural help of God. Both of these things, repentance and faith, require humility and the supernatural help of God. When I say help, I mean the very power to do that thing which He demands. This is why the only thing we can do is cry out to God to save us. 
This is why we continue to do so even after salvation proper. This is why even as believers we aren't delivered from our woes until we drop our arrogance and seek true wisdom. Let's get back to where we were on Thursday in part one of this series where the Spirit introduced us to our current series up here on the board. Again, the gospel is offensive. It offends. The true gospel, not a watered-down one, not one that accommodates the sensibilities of man, not one that leaves space for the self-life. Not that one. There's an abundance of those in the so-called Christian churches nowadays. But that's not the true gospel of Jesus Christ, not the one that he spoke of. The gospel is the most offensive news you can give an unbeliever still abiding in their flesh, particularly an arrogant one, 1 Peter 2, 7 and 8. We'll get there in a moment. An arrogant person will take a free ticket to heaven. I mean, who doesn't want a fortune? but will always refuse the call to repentance that Jesus demanded. Go to 1 Peter 2.7. 1 Peter 2.7. Why? Why? The gospel is offensive, my friends. Not to us, to us, it's the very power of God to salvation. Amen. Romans 1, 16, 1, 17. We have faith in this thing. For the righteous man shall live by faith. From faith to faith, right? We live this thing. This is the very essence of our lives. We need to depend on the living word, the word of God, the gospel, every day of our lives and be thankful and be grateful for it. 1 Peter 2, 7. 1 Peter 2, verse 7. This precise value then is for you who believe, but for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builder rejected, this became the very cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, for they stumble because they are disobedient to the word. And to this doom they were also appointed. You see, Jesus Christ is the very stumbling block. He is the cornerstone, but he's also the rock of offense. In other words, what Jesus stood for, remember the gospel is Jesus Christ and his work. That's the good news about Jesus Christ and his work. And he's very offensive to people who don't want him, who don't want Lord and Savior. He's the stumbling block. He's the rock of offense. Why? Because they didn't believe him. They stumbled because they are disobedient to the word. And therefore, as Jesus would say, they're gonna, they die in their sins. Jesus Christ is the stumbling block. He is the rock of offense. Just like when you present the gospel. If the gospel is the good news about Jesus Christ and his work, then when you present that to someone, it's going to be offensive. No different in the same nature that it was offensive back then. <clears throat> Again, the point of the board is that the gospel is the most offensive news you can give an unbeliever still abiding in the flesh. 
particularly an arrogant one. An arrogant person will take the free ticket to heaven, but will always refuse the call to repentance that Jesus demanded up here on the board. If the gospel you're presenting, just to put sort of, you know, rubber hits the road, if the gospel you're presenting to an unbeliever isn't offensive to their flesh, then you're not presenting the true gospel of Jesus Christ. If the flesh can somehow live with it, because the gospel you're presenting is somehow accommodating to it, then it's not the gospel of Jesus Christ. Consider Jesus' own words. Go to Luke 13.5. Luke 13.5. Luke 13.5. That's a real good litmus test for your own evangelistic efforts, if you would. If the gospel you're presenting isn't offensive, then it's not the gospel of Jesus Christ. Of course it's going to be offensive to someone's flesh. Luke 13:5. I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will likewise all likewise perish. Huh. Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he began telling this parable. A man had a fig tree which had been planted in his vineyard, and he came looking for fruit on it and did not find any. And he said to the vineyard keeper, Behold, for three years I have come looking for fruit on this fig tree without finding any. Cut it down. Why does it even use up the ground? And he answered and said to him, Let it alone, sir, for this year too, until I dig around it and put in fertilizer. And if it bears fruit next year, fine, but if not, cut it down. That's the very patience of God waiting around until a person repents. And remember, repentance precedes deliverance. In this context here, you could argue that this is not even talking about salvation principles. This is talking about deliverance principles. And that repentance precedes all kinds and all forms of salvation. Whether it's salvation proper the way we think about it regarding the gospel or salvation from any other issue. Repentance always precedes salvation slash deliverance. God won't have it any other way. As we see in this parable, God is willing to be patient with unrepentant man. But let us never assume that patience is the same as omission. Do not, do not confuse patience with omission. Remember, God is not mocked for what a man sows this he will reap. God is never mocked. Don't ever, ever think that just because God's showing you patience or somebody else that he's omitted his own justice and righteousness or integrity to a situation. If he makes a demand, he means it. If he says this is what it takes to be delivered, he means it. If he sets certain conditions forth, he means it. I'm thinking of the uh, conditional covenants even. He meant it when he said it. If you don't do this, you're going to be punished. And guess what? They didn't do it. And guess what happened? They were punished. And guess what they had to do? Repent! You know why? Because that's what precedes salvation slash deliverance. Repentance precedes salvation slash deliverance. Do you get it? That's the pattern. 
That's the pattern throughout the entire Bible, whether you're talking about salvation proper or any form of deliverance. Just like you, what happens? What, is, what are you supposed to do when you sin? Confess it. That's a certain form of repentance. Do you understand? That's the fruit of repentance. You want sweet fellowship with God? You've got to at least admit when you're out of whack. Repentance precedes salvation slash deliverance. That is the pattern, even for believers, even for the, the uh, people of God, Israel. God doesn't have it any other way. Do you understand? You know why? Because he's not mocked. That's the whole point. To say that he will omit the idea of repentance is to call him a liar. And say that he, he's somehow suspending his own, his own integrity. Yet that's what people do this very Sunday morning. In other words, just because God is patient with man's arrogance, and maybe this is the time when he's tilling the fields, and he's like, oh man, you are one hard ground. Right? And you're out there trying to be the evangelist, you're like, you hit a rock. And the ox is like sweating bullets. Because the field is really rocky and tough and this kind of thing. God's being patient during that time. Conditioning the soil. But just because God is patient with man's arrogance, this doesn't mean that we have the right to assume that God will save an unrepentant person. Up here on the board, salvation is never preceded by unrepentance. Just the opposite is true. Repentance precedes salvation slash deliverance. God doesn't save an unrepentant person, do you understand? Go to Romans 2.3. Romans 2.3. And I hope you understand what I'm saying, my friends. I'm not saying that you've got to climb some ladder of repentance. I'm not saying this is some human work. I'm saying that God gives you repentance. Remember, the, the general pattern is that anytime he makes a demand of you, he's the one who solves the problem by grace. Now that may seem paradoxical to you, but too bad. That's what the Bible says. I'm teaching you what the Bible says. Romans 2, verse 3. But do you suppose this, O man? So Paul opens up the discussion to include even unbelievers. O man, when you possess judgment on those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience? <coughs> Excuse me, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? That's New Testament last time I checked, right? That's not even red letters, right? That's the Apostle Paul, right? Romans 2.5 but because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. That is the unbeliever's game in a nutshell. Who will render to each person according to his deeds, to those who by perseverance and doing good seek for glory and honor in immortality, eternal life. But 
to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, wrath, and indignation. That's the end game of the unbeliever. So you have in verse 7, the believer, and verse 8, the unbeliever. What's the distinction? Starts with an R, ends with an E. R-E-P, repentance. The unbeliever is unwilling to repent. And repentance precedes salvation slash deliverance. What do you think Paul is writing about? Some people are so confused about the gospel of Jesus Christ, they say Paul never said anything about repentance. That he had a different gospel even. I don't know how many gospel people think there are, but last time I checked, there's only one gospel in the Bible. One! Say it with me. One! It's unbelievable what's being taught from pulpits nowadays. Oh, well, the Jews had theirs, and, and Jesus said to something different, and then Paul had another gospel. All right, let's just back up for a moment. Our God is not a God of confusion. If you have to be a Ph.D. in theology to understand just those three Gospels, something's wrong. Something's wrong. God didn't give us the Bible to confuse us. And God is not a liar or a God of confusion. If you have to be a Ph.D. in theology to understand the Gospel, your Gospel's wrong. If you have more than one Gospel, they're all wrong, presumably. It turns out, as we'll continue to see, that repentance is a keystone element to the gospel call. Sadly, contemporary Christianity's definition of repentance has been so watered down that it is void of truth. That's the problem. I'm, reflect with me for a moment. I'm doing the best I can as a teacher, by the way, to extract any of you from any of this any false doctrine, any kind of false anything in your soul that might be lingering there from some previous religion or understanding. Consider the following. Consider how every man and woman is born. We are all born into the domain of sin, under the very sovereignty of it. And our fleshes gladly abide in it. They love it. Our flesh loves the sovereignty of sin. Our minds, our hearts, and our wills are subjects of sin. That's what the Bible tells us. The human flesh likes the sovereignty of sin. And its mind, its heart, and its will are subject of this thing called sin. That is what it means to be a true subject it is a, let's call it a whole person situation. You are a subject to that sovereignty. I mean, think about heaven for a moment, just to turn the tables around. If that's one extreme, think about heaven for a moment. Is God going to have people in heaven with him if only part of them is subject to his sovereignty? Well, you got two out of three, and as Meatloaf would say, two out of three ain't bad. (laughs) 
Let me say it again. Is God going to have people in heaven with him if only part of them is subject to his sovereignty? Of course not. In fact, we will be so, as we like to say in theology, ultimately sanctified that we will be perfect subjects, mind, heart, and will. So, if we consider the estate in which every man and woman is born, we quickly realize that salvation demands, think of that general principle I gave you, demands a biblical repentance. Okay, when God gives us the demand, who has to solve the problem? God does, by grace. Okay, when we consider the estate in which every man and woman is born, we quickly realize that salvation demands a biblical repentance for the whole man is born and trapped in the domain of sin. Therefore, the whole man must repent from it. That's why we're made new. We're made new creatures even in Christ Jesus. And do not forget our key principle, again, from earlier up here on the board, the general truth about demands. The Bible is chock full of demands that are likely, or excuse me, literally impossible for man to obey without the help of the one making them. While this seems paradoxical, it is nothing less than God's grace. God is merely looking for willingness and humility in man. So, if you're convinced of the need for repentance in the gospel call, then it's equally important to accept that you must possess the correct definition. In other words, if you agree with what the Spirit's saying here this morning, that repentance certainly is part of the gospel call, uh, call, one side of the same coin, if you will, if you agree with that, then doesn't it behoove us to understand the definition of that thing that we say is slapped on one side of the coin? Shouldn't we understand what biblical repentance is by definition? What is repentance and who gets to define it? It's our title series, our series title, excuse me. That's our good work here. If we can all agree that repentance is one side of the same coin, then we better have a good definition for repentance, lest we end up confused about the whole thing. Let me give you an analogy to help. If you're convinced that a cake recipe requires two eggs, doesn't it make sense that you understand exactly what an egg is? By definition, I'm, I'm being serious. Should I use a chicken egg or an ostrich egg? What if I come in with an ostrich egg and I throw it in the cake thing? I'm going to end up with a messed up looking cake, right? <laughs> what about a robin egg, those little blue things? Probably going to be dry. Just saying. Something's going to go wrong. I better understand what they're asking for. Is that true? I can't show up. or I, I mean, can I show up with an egg substitute and expect the same results? No, of course not. Yet, that is exactly what some Christians propose by clinging to a false definition of repentance. This is why I'm utterly convinced, and this makes me very sad and simultaneously very unpopular, this is why I'm utterly convinced that there are a lot of so-called Christians out there who remain dead in their sins because they have, in their arrogance, refused 
to repent. Refused. It's true that many of them have said the words, I believe I'm a sinner. I believe that too. (laughs) But that's not repentance, as we'll continue to see. You saying that you're a sinner, after someone says, have you ever lied? That's a sin, right? Then you're a sinner. Okay, I'm a sinner. That's not repentance. That's agreeing with some facts. There's a big difference, my friends. That's not repentance. You can believe a lot of facts about yourself or even Jesus Christ and still remain in your sins. That's the point. Just ask the fallen angels. What does Scripture say? James said this about the fallen angels. James 2.19 up here on the board. You believe that God is one. You do well. The demons also believe and shudder. All right. You ready? Let me, let me give you... This is going to make a whole lot of sense. We're going to make a whole lot of sense to you right now. While demons know the facts, they still don't believe, you see. Ask yourselves this question. I need you to sort of dwell on this over the rest of the weekend. Ask yourselves if the demons know the following facts about Jesus. Okay, the gospel of Jesus is what? The good news about Jesus Christ, the person, and his work. Is that fair? Okay. Ask yourselves if the demons, fallen angels, not saved, know the following facts about Jesus Christ. Ask yourself. And remember who was literally hovering around the cross. Go to 1 Corinthians 15.3. Ask yourselves if demons know these facts. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 3. Okay, you ready? Because this is some people's gospel, by the way. This is what some people write on the back of coins and say, if you believe this, you're saved. Hogwash. 1 Corinthians 15.3, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Are those facts about Jesus Christ? You bet. Does that illuminate the gospel of Jesus Christ? You bet it does. You absolutely bet it does. Nothing wrong with those statements whatsoever. It's absolutely magnificent. But let's get back to the demons. You know who was there? You know who wasn't there? You. But you know who was there? Demons. If not Satan himself, watching. Okay, you ready? The demons were there. The demons saw it all. And they witnessed all of these facts. They were there. 
They witnessed all of the facts in verses 3 and 4. His death, his burial, and his resurrection. And you know what? They believed them. You know why? Because they witnessed them. They saw Jesus Christ hung on a cross. They saw him die, and they saw the resurrected Jesus Christ. And you know what? They believed it because it was right there in front of them. Wait a minute, wait a minute. You mean demons believe the facts about Jesus Christ? Yup. Yes, they do. Yet they remain unsaved. I guess believing in mere facts isn't enough in God's eyes, huh? I guess believing in facts isn't enough in God's eyes. Because even the demons believe these things. Matter of fact, some of them were first-hand witnesses. If not all, who knows who was looking at this, the greatest event in all of human history. You know what's funny? Such is the case, not funny, haha, funny, sad. Such is the case with many so-called Christians nowadays. They believe facts. The issue is that they have made a decision to abide in their sins instead of through humility, repenting, and receiving saving faith. Some would argue, I guess, that they have repented, but they are using a bad definition for repentance. Their definition of repentance is, yeah, I agree I'm a sinner, and I mentally turn away from it. But there's no surrender. Understanding facts about you or Jesus Christ don't save you, my friends. Because even the demons know those things. Even the demons know you're a sinner. Heck, they tempt you. Remember, that's how Satan works. He loves bad definitions. He loves for people to be lazy. Loves for people to make accommodations for their flesh. And nowhere is this greater than with salvation proper. Up here on the board, then I've got to pick a spot to, to close here. I'll give you one scripture and then one more principle and I, I will close. Isaiah 5.20 says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those. You know what, you know what Paul says, and I think it's Galatians 1? He says, anyone who peddles a false gospel is to be accursed, Maranatha. Have the very judgment of God on their head. Woe to them. The greatest thing we can possibly do in our lives is pursue the truth about the gospel. And the greatest privilege we'll ever have is to present it.
I got to close because I'm going to blow apart at the seams again. One of the easiest, most insidious ways that Satan trips us up is with perverted definitions. A perfect example is with repentance. If you cling to a hack version of it, your salvation is at stake. He doesn't want you to understand what the Bible says about the call to repentance. He does not want you to understand it. He wants you to believe a lie, a lie that is prevalent in so-called Christian churches across our entire country and presumably the world. And by the way, by the by, this phenomenon is not that old. If you go back to even as far as a guy like Spurgeon, and definitely to the early church, the fact, if, if they ever breathed that repentance wasn't part of the gospel call, they would flip out. Flip the heck out. For good reason, the same way I am right now. This is a contemporary phenomenon. This idea that repentance is not required, that it's not part of the gospel call. Don't believe me? Get off your butt, you're lazy behind, and do your own homework then. Do your own homework, just like I have. Hours and hours of it for you. Why? To get you thinking right? To wake you up? I don't know. Whatever you need. That's what a shepherd does, you know? The rod and the staff? That's my job. Wake up. Wake up. You may have insidious, perverted definitions in your soul. And because of it, you still suffer. And as the five of the people that said they got saved over the past couple of years, you might be stuck like they were. I hope not, but it's possible. There's one more piece, and then I'll close. We began investigating this with a convention that the uh, late R.C. Sproul liked to use to explain true versus false repentance. And it's just these words, attrition versus contrition. True repentance is an act of contrition, not attrition. Contrition is from contrite. Remember, we looked at these passages. God loves a contrite heart. God regards a humble spirit, a contrite heart. What is contrite? To be worn out, ground to pieces. Again, I encourage you to read Psalm 51, I believe it is, with David. David was a broken down man. And you know what? He was the same guy who's called a man after God's own heart. And you know what he had? A contrite heart. Why? Because of sin in his life. He didn't just mentally go, yep, that's sin, and walk away. His whole person was affected by it. You figure it out. You figure it out. Contrition versus attrition. Attrition is really just, theologically speaking, someone who doesn't really want to be punished. And the example is, again, relative to the whole man, mind, heart, and will, is the little boy who gets caught with his hand in the cookie jar. 
If his apology is motivated by the thought of impending punishment, that's not true repentance. That's what we call attrition. Alternatively, if that same child is truly remorseful, we call this contrition. Quickly, go to Psalm 34.18. Psalm 34.18, and that's where I'm going to end. Psalm 34, 18. Psalm 34, 18. The Lord is near to the broken and saves those who are crushed in spirit. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. You know what James 4, 6 says? God gives grace to the humble and is opposed to the proud. Giving grace to the humble means to save them. God is opposed to the proud. God gives grace to the humble. God saves. He's near the brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. You figure it out. Repentance precedes salvation slash deliverance. Amen? Let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much once again for this tremendous privilege and opportunity to study your word. Thank you for putting up with us. Thank you for your patience, your mercy, and your love. We just ask for the grace provisions, of course, to take the things that we've learned out to a lost and dying world, Father, that need these things so desperately. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.